You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This works. It's better, right, Bracken? You cool with this? Well, again, I'm not moving, guys. Your hair would say otherwise. <laughs> He's full of them. Um, and I probably will drop video just because I don't have a ton of, oh, fuck it. I don't have, I don't care about data. I don't have a ton of data. You don't do an unlimited plan in this day and age? I do not. Wow. I am driving now. Tell people what you were just doing. You're driving back from somewhere doing something very specific. What is that? So I drove an hour and 20 minutes to the St. Anthony sand dunes in eastern Idaho to go run around in sand for like an hour doing intervals, which went kind of okay in prep for Spartan Race World Championships in United Arab Emirates in the middle of the desert with giant sand dunes. That's specificity right there. (laughs) It was... So there was some great learning experiences because I haven't been on like real sand dunes in a while. This race is going to take so much longer than people think, like so much longer. If they put us half marathon on like soft sand, it's going to be a grind. And you can't even go fast except downhill. I know you know this, but I ran in Dubai twice. And the first time there was a super... And it was the most miserable race I've ever run in my life because it was sand 100% of the time. The second time there was sand for a few miles and the rest was hard packed dirt and mountain running. So it depends which version we get. I think you're going to get some hard pack, but the sand portion is just the worst. I'm thinking like 70 or 80% sand and then definitely some hard pack running just to make it a little bit more visually appealing. But it is like the intervals, you can't even elevate your heart rate because you can't even go fast enough. You can't move fast enough to elevate to the intensity that you're looking for. That can't be true. My heart rate was like maxed out. I mean, in Vegas, when we ran in sand, I felt like it was like climbing up a mountain and through sand simultaneously. That's how I felt. So flat sand running, you can go, you can go pretty hard uphill sand running. If it's soft, you just slip so much that you can't get the cadence that you need to. Like your return on investment is poor. Exactly. It triples the size of the hill. Yes. I got a thousand feet in five miles. And that was like, that was a good chunk, but I'm assuming we'll do like 3k with the big the, with the size of dunes over 13 miles potentially either way it's going to be rough and it's it's a the the guy that beat me over there the first time it was a russian sergey perligan i think his name yeah, he's been around for a while yeah i know sergey but he had done some sand running prior to it and it showed it doesn't take a t- it's like it's like any other skill work it doesn't take a ton of practice to see noticeable improvement Oh, just this one session, I was like, this is, like, if I didn't do any other training, that would have been super helpful just to go out there and get on the sand and know what it feels like. Um, For those who are unable to do that, I would go out of your way to trying to get, like, one or two sessions on sand 
prior to the event. The most frustrating part to me is that if you're a runner like myself who runs by pushing off the ground, that's not the way sand works. You have to run by lifting your leg off the ground. It's it's a different way of driving power. Yes, it's very short, choppy strides. And you don't, if the, the more you push, the less efficient it is. Yeah, you have to try to be a water bug where you're lifting off without trying to sink in. There is no push off. It's very strange. It fits Hobie really well. If you look at Hobie's gait, it's like perfect mm-hmm. for him. I would think that exaggerated forward lean where you let gravity do the work and just put your feet in front of you to prevent you from landing on your face. That might be a good potential strategy. A little extra forward lean than typically indicated. I can see that paying off. Yeah, the problem is you get super tired and you hinge from the, like, you hinge in the wrong place. Your rear chain. Yeah. it. And I used to think snow running would prepare me for it better, but it doesn't. Because snow running, you still hit the ground at some point and can push off of it. It helps a little, but it's not ideal. Yeah, yeah it's. It go, I would say it's better than like flat hard running, but it's not the same as sand. I would say running in shin or knee-deep water might even be better than snow running. No, because you still get the stability with water. But you have to pick your legs up. That's true. That is true. Either way, sand is best. Sand is best. I agree. And I'm sure I'll feel it in my hips tonight. Uh, Ian, um, you know what you're doing here today, right? You know why we sequestered you for this ongoing? You, you gave me a brief overview of it. I figured you'd just ask some questions. We will, but um, but first I just want to get caught up on you because we chatted with you maybe like a year ago or so. And as listeners know, we're doing this coaches series where we're getting philosophy, asking specific questions about training or coaching or all of the above, and then hopefully you learn something from it. But, dude, we haven't talked to you. I don't know. It hasn't been a year, Bracken. It's probably been about that. Yeah. Um, roughly. And so we just want to get caught up. Like how have your, how's your season gone? How you feeling about it? What's new with you? Um, other than the sweet shades, all of that stuff. Oh yeah. Sweet shades. Uh, Torig eyewear. It sent me some free glasses. You guys can go look at them. Um, my season up until October, late, like late mid September, October was garbage. Um, I had made some changes in my fueling and nutrition that really caused me to bonk in some big races. Uh, West Virginia won, but I had been under fueling the entire year, it turns out. I made a change and really noticed some improvements there. My fitness had been good, just wasn't able to like actually have the calories. Hold up. I can't let it go. I can't let it go. I got to know. <laughs> I don't like generalities. I like specifics. What did you change? Why didn't it work? And what did you change back? Okay. Specifically, I was working with Manuka Sport in 2019. And then that that relationship ended. And they had more gel-based stuff, um, which I would mix in a water solution and be getting a lot of calories per hour around. 200 plus to 300, somewhere around there. Um, As a, by the way, I'm going to stop you real quick. You turned me on to Manuka Sport and a big fan of their product. The only downfall is they're a overseas or foreign company and getting their product is a pain in the butt, but they make yes. very good stuff. I was a fan. Yes. And I mean, I 
I enjoyed their product. It worked really well for me. They made some changes in the formula where they added, they took out a lot more of the Manuka honey and just put in maltodextrin. So they just became another standard gel, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, mm. It just was a little bit of a, less of a selling point for me. Um, but I started working with Enduralite and I switched to more liquid powder calories. And with that, I would still be trying to get the calories, but I'd finish runs, even training runs and races. And there'd be like out of a 16 ounce bottle, there'd be five ounces left. And when you fuel with liquid calories, a lot of the actual calories will sink to the bottom as well. So you have to shake it up. So those five ounces, that's a third of your calories you're not getting. And that potentially more, potentially more. And after I figured that out, I was quite frustrated because that's just like going in to the race handicapped and not like just being stupid and not making the right decisions. So I've switched to um, more gel based and uh, he, there's a Enduralite product called Carb Shot. And I found mixing um, three ounces of that with one ounce of maple syrup and then adding four ounces of, of water is like rocket fuel. It is so good. And right there, that's a 60, 60 gram mix, a um, little over 200 calories, but then you can add that ratio or keep that ratio and add more. So I'm trying to get like 80, 90 grams an hour now. And it's, you feel much better on longer races and even shorter ones. Um, so that was the specifics. And I made that change. I still fuel with liquid stuff, but more on controlled areas or uh, modalities. So if I'm, I'm biking, it's a lot easier to get as many calories as you need as opposed to running um, with liquid in that case. You know, I found the same thing. I really loved the way sustained tasted and sat, but it does not play well with water. It just will not mix fully to get the number of calories you need in per ounce. And that's why I fully switched to Tailwind now. Because Tailwind, I can double the recommended uh, scoops and it still mixes almost instantly. So I don't, I don't deal with, I have 300 kales in this bottle and I hope I can get maybe 150 out of it. I know that whatever I put in, I get back and it doesn't taste as good, but at least now, yeah. like you said, you know, the calories are getting in. Yeah. And I actually asked Matt Mossman about that and I was like, Matt, why does this stuff dissolve? And he's like, yeah, it's the specific carb portion so it's like the pea whatever or the um the sweet potato pieces that they're blended up but they just don't dissolve they don't go into solution and so there are those um pieces of calories floating in there that actually sink to the bottom but there the uh this is the sustainably x does fully dissolve so that is an option bracket if you want to check it out that one is oh i haven't tried that yeah, it's pure dextrin, so you can super saturate that pretty easily. And the car shot. I like having a power bottle of mix, something super saturated where I can just take it as extended shots, but get a bit of water as well, because gels don't work for me. You should try the carb shot maple syrup mix. It's it's pretty great. I'm a big proponent of it now. Okay. This isn't the point of the interview, and we'll move on right after this, Kirk, but... I don't know if I've shared this story before. I 
practiced with Sustain Elite for a long time. And leading up to my last Spartan World Championships, I did. I was all prepared with, I had my soft flask in my back hip. And then I had two spare soft flasks with already the scoops in there just twisted up. So all I had to do was add water and go so that I could carry enough on course. And I got through the swim, went to a water station and it had gunked up the nozzle. And no matter how much water I put through there, none would come out through the nozzle. So I ended up having none of the calories I brought along. And they were, they were all sitting there. You can twist the top off Bracken. That's an option. No, because it was all gunked at the, I had an inch at the bottom of solid concrete. Oh, stuck on the bottom. I had eight inches of water at the top and then another half inch of gunk stuck in the top. So both ends were concreted up and I didn't get any calories. It was terrible. I'm just sensing rookie moves happening all over. I'm turning off my video for hopefully better connection. Okay. You sound fine. Ian's driving right now, but he's going to get home and then he's going to he's going to sound like silky smooth once he arrives at his homestead. I wanted to um, ask you really quick before we dive into like the the weeds with you, which I know you like doing. Um, you, you seem to be like a, a master, at least in the last few seasons. You've done a really good job of like periodizing your racing, whereas uh, and not I don't know if it's by design or not, but you like start your season with like average performances and then you always bring it together at the end of the season, which is honestly admirable because really when it counts is when it counts. And for those of you who doesn't know, don't know, like Ian was fifth at the Spartan world champs the last time they were held. And I think that was your highest finish in any U S national series race. Even prior to that, I think worlds was your best performance on any sort of big stage. So like, I want to know quickly, like how you're setting yourself up for December is there is there something to all of this that we've never discussed before meaning like you know peaking at the right time or you just get lucky and is that what it is just luck uh two things first i have finished fourth at the portland u.s national series in 2017 i'm talking about the years in which you finished really strong at the end like when you were fifth at worlds that was your highest performance in any big race I was just, I was saying I was saying US National Series race highest performance. So I have finished fourth. Um secondly, it is not luck whatsoever. I knew that. I just wanted to rib you a little bit. Oh, I know. I I was fully aware. Um you cannot hold so right now I'm at my peak volume in terms of hours of cardio per week and if i were to try and sustain this the entire season i probably would be divorced and a very grumpy angry person um peak volume is not sustainable for really really long periods of time your brain melts you can't recover properly hey i'm gonna stop you can you say that sentence again please because i have a few athletes who aren't happy with the amount of volume i prescribe them in their off season they, were, they thought it was a little too low. Can you say that first sentence again, please, about high volume and sustaining it? Yes. Uh, peak volume is not sustainable for long periods of time. One more time. Say it again, please. There's just a couple people I want to hear this. For those of you who are worried about your current volume, peak volume is not <laughs> sustainable for long periods of time. It's a fridge magnet. It is. Continue. Throughout the year, I progressively build my volume in a safe, sustainable, increasing load manner to where I am right now. And then 
I hold that for, and it depends on the races. Usually I maybe would have gotten here a little bit sooner, but with races being in December, uh, it was pushed back a little bit this year. I also started training this year a little bit later than normal as well. Just due to, I did not want to go to Jacksonville because I really hate that course and that I don't like Florida in general. Um, so it is by no means luck that I get to this place, uh, when I want to be. And also along those lines, um, there's the physiological aspect, but there's also dialing in everything. So like this year I had troubles with nutrition and fueling and a lot of the season was helping get rid of those issues. So I'm able to like quote, unlock my true performance for races when it matters. Um, hopefully you don't have to do as much of that during the early or middle of the season because you have good coaches or people around you that can help you with it or you've learned the lessons and you don't have to repeat them but sometimes you have a pandemic that shows up and you forget some of the crucial lessons and you have to relearn them the hard way and that has been the case this year for me um but no it's all about looking at the big picture and performing where you want to perform best yeah now, this is interesting because you are the second guest on our coaching philosophy series, and the first guest is was not a huge subscriber to periodized training. Now, we're not here to pit one system against the other. We're here to present all facets of coaching philosophies and let the audience decide what they do and don't like. But I really like the dichotomy of these first two episodes here because we're not even, what, 20 minutes into the episode and we're already to like the big deviation from what we talked about last. So this is something I'm excited to get to at some point today. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be clear. Um, my, the way I periodize training is purely volume based. It is not kind of the old school mindset where you have the endurance building phase, uh, power phase, sharpening phase, I do not break it down like that. It is purely volume based. So, and that's time and intensity. Um, the ratios of lower intensity to higher intensity stay pretty much the same during the entire training period, except for off season and maybe some recovery weeks. But for the most part, it is pure volume progression where it is increasing volume and then having a deload or recovery week and then repeating that. Well, we got to dive into that, don't we? I didn't know it written down. Ask about Nike. And I feel like you led me into that one, Ian, because this is, in all of my personal research, keeps coming back to Nike or the first people, the coaches there, to move away from the standard periodized schedule to a speed work year round with volume periodization. Is this what is, you know, for people that didn't listen to your episode, they need to go back and listen to your episode because. It was fascinating, but is this where you picked that up back with your years at Nike, or is this something that was independent of that? Short answer is yes, but I've also just, with my education since then and my re own research into sports science and physiology, it doesn't make sense. That's not, the body doesn't work like the old school methodology. The body adapts to whatever stress you apply to it. It doesn't know you did this training session 40 days ago. So therefore it now is going to hold on to that or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. it needs to have a fairly continuous stimulus 
to a certain extent, it will hold on to those adaptations. But if you don't work the system, they will go away. And I did get to work with some really cool, smart people uh, at Nike who they didn't necessarily give me like the handheld of like, this is how you train as a professional athlete, but they gave me an understanding of this is what sports science is. This is what physiology is. This is how the body works. And then I came up with training programs over the years and my own algorithm, if you will, uh, from all of that information and just applying it. And that's one thing is that's very interesting when talking with coaches is you, a lot of them have similar knowledge base, but you get to the applications and they're drastically different. And often I think something I've noticed is they forget the fundamentals of the body and how it works and how it moves. And they go on to these really nitty gritty things, but they don't, they don't take into account the basics. Keep going on that. What, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see coaches making in terms of forgetting what the body responds to and how it reacts? I mean, it will, we'll talk about the volume periodization. Like, Yes, you can do an, a, a giant load or giant stimulus on the body and take an athlete who's running 20 miles a week and pump them up to a 50-mile week in, in one week. You can do that. The athlete's not going to feel great. But the risk of injury is extremely high. Um, on paper and within the algorithms and the modeling, it'll show the athlete's going to get way faster. But you don't take into account how fast the soft tissue develops mostly tendons and ligaments. The muscles might be okay. They adapt the fastest out of everything, but tendons and ligaments take weeks and months, sometimes years, depending on if it's like ACL um, or like really deep ligaments. That loading time needs to be slow and progressive. And if you just shock the system, they might be okay, but you can't maintain it. And that's where you'll see a very high injury rate. And as we all know, endurance athletics is a long-term gain sport. So if you have this spark of a season or career and then you're injured for the rest of your life, was that really worth it? I mean, that's that's a whole other ethics debate, but um, that's my view on it is it's not worth it. And you can get even greater potential if you do progressively get to that 50 mile week over the course of like eight or 10 weeks instead of one. Mm-hmm. Risk versus reward, so to speak. When we're talking about volume, like periodizing on a volume sense versus like a base and then threshold and then sharpening phase. Like, just because I think this will be good for people to hear. Um, clearly you've had your sights on December. That was your decision you made this year. And without giving away like the farm on this one, if you had to walk us through your thought process and your training, like just generalities from like January through December, and just with the assumption that you plan and hope to go and do well in December at the world championships in Abu Dhabi, like, could you just like walk us through, you don't have to be super specific if you don't want to, but like, like, so somebody can get a, get a hold of what you're talking about. Like, what would that look like over a 12 or a, a 10 to 12 month period? Um, it, it kind of depends on how much racing you're doing within that time frame as well. So the more races you have and the races you want to do well at, um, within my training structure, there is like a taper period and a recovery period for races that are you want to perform well at or need to recover from. Um, so that will cut into training time some. However, I i mean, it's even larger than just kind of a January picture. I take into how much time I had in the off season, how much time I was down, and then I start a progressive volume build from that point, um, moving up over the entire year. 
my cycle is usually four weeks of building volume or in, um, four weeks of building volume slash time and then taking a recovery week and repeating that um, just all the way up till now, which is October, um, and then progressing. And then usually I want to hold it for six weeks to get really, really solid, but that's, that's a hard, that's when you don't feel very good. Um, right now I'm at, at around 13, 14 hours of cardio and then several hours of strength training and then supplementary, uh, injury prevention work. So it's, it's a lot right now. Um, and managing your time to make sure it works, but it's, it's a slow progression to make sure you do it right and stay healthy enough to get to the end of the season. Um, this year has been pretty unique where I think a lot of people got injured at the beginning of the year instead of the middle. So that has allowed them to be healthier come now as opposed to getting injured in the middle of the season and then kind of the late season is ruined for them. Mm -hmm. You talk about your four up, one down approach. Do you like to sequentially raise little bits of volume every four or do you hold at a volume for four, eight, 12 before moving on? And is that dependent on how high percentage wise you are compared to your potential max or is it, or do you like to step up the same steps regardless? Uh, I do it percentage based. So, and I will um, sequentially increase volume over those four weeks until you hit your peak volume. And then I will hold you there. And once you hit your peak volume, um, it depends on the athlete, but I might shift it more to a three to one just because maintaining that load for four weeks, you're pretty much toast by the end of it. Mm -hmm. um, not everyone has the amount of time they need in a day to recover. Uh, most people have full-time jobs, so you can't train full-time at peak volume. Go do your job and do that for four weeks without turning into a pile of goo. Um, but the amount I increase each week is based on the previous week, and that's a percentage-based. And I use the rule of thumb of around 10%. Uh, however, that shifts where you're at in the season. Um, if you're at a higher volume, I'll actually drop that down lower to usually like seven, eight, somewhere around there. And do you go in with a, this is what we want to hit peak volume, or do you start with, here's where we're at and we're going to build up 10% until we hit whatever our peak volume reveals itself to be? The second one. And it, sometimes athletes might already know their peak volume. Um, I know where mine is. I'm very close to it, if not at it. But usually there's a lot of warning signs that they'll do one week of training after a recovery week and be completely toast or small injuries will start to creep, creep up or injuries or illnesses. Um, getting sick is a, just another form of getting injured because you're instead of uh, your soft tissue being compromised or even hard tissue, your immune system is the one that's taking the hit. So, so if I'm understanding this right, if I'm just going to like simplify it, and granted, you're building to a longer race, like a race of two hour duration or so. Let's just say roughly in Abu Dhabi. Um, you're basically taking little stepping ladders and increasing volume along the way with recovery periods uh, every four weeks or so. And then at the end, when it really counts, you're making like if you can like a five or six week push at high volume before your final deload or taper into your your most important race of the year. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's a great summation. Nailed it.
All right. Got it. I mean, I can, I can understand that. That's a philosophy that I can be like, makes sense to me. I like it so far. And one of the things, one of the things I always like to, when having conversations like this is I'll ask individuals or athletes if it makes sense. And the fact that you said it makes sense, Kirk, is a good thing. Cause if you have a program and this is getting into the other coaches philosophies out there and the different things that don't make sense, why in the hell would you do that? Searching for a magic pill, right? That's why people do things they don't understand is because they're hoping for some magic, magic solution out there. That is true. But most times even magic pills make sense in terms of like getting in. If it actually is magic, like has whimsical powers, that makes sense that you would take it. But if it's like a placebo, there's, I mean, I can't go into placebo because that actually does have magical powers and there are tons of studies proving it. <laughs> that might be the most magical thing we know of. <laughs> what, type, what type of pills have magical powers? Like if you were to like give me a handful of pills, what would you put, which pills would you put in my hand? I was thinking of Jack and the Magic Beanstalk, but yeah. that, that was the only one that came to mind. <laughs> Hyperbole. Okay. I have one more question on this train of thought as we're going. And, and it was that, so what I, what I, I think like a lot of athletes wonder about and um, probably waffle, especially the self-coached athletes is like performing well in races along the way, but not letting those races detriment your end goal too much. Like, you know, if you really care about 12 races throughout the year, like, is it really possible or are you, and I mean, I have my own answers to this, but this episode isn't about me or Bracken. It's about you. So like training through and knowing you're not going to perform your best, or is it possible to go and perform nearly your best six times a year in route to the big dance at the end of the year? What do you think? And how often am I going to layer more? And how often is too often when it comes to racing, if you're going to be productive in training? It depends on what the training looks like into the racing period and then how long the racing period is as well. So if you want to have well, two races a month is too much. One race a month is pushing it. And we'll say there's a four-month period of solid training leading into these. Um, a race every, like, seven weeks is pretty darn good. I could say you could be as fairly close to peaking for each of those races um, pretty comfortably. And that's a race every almost two months. More than that, it's going to be detrimental to training. And then you also need to ask the athlete what their goals are, and that can play a big role in it. Uh, if they're going after a certain series where that's not possible, but that's kind of their goals in the year, then you should really focus on that and optimizing those races, even if it means late season, they're not going to be as good. Okay. When you talk about two a month is too much, which I think, yeah, that's not a super sustainable style of racing if you want peak performance. But when you say too much and one every seven weeks is probably as close as you'd want to put them. Are you talking in terms of to be ready for the race or in order to recover well and not kind of erode the training that's going in which which end matters more to you or to your point of view a little bit of both i mean in order to do all the races you want and do well in them you have to be healthy enough to actually get to the start line and be able to move off of the start line mm -hmm. if you go right. in with a stress fracture that's not going to be very great um unless you're, unless you're lindsey webster and then you go run tahoe and take second but 
her and Ryan are kind of outliers. So we, I don't think they should be brought into any actual models. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can't look at Ryan's racing schedule. No, I mean, I spoke with someone or Ryan mentioned recently, like he doesn't really taper except for like world championships. And that's just ridiculous. Not many people can do. I don't know of anyone else who can do that. Um, uh, going back to your question, Bracken, I would say it's it's both. You want them to be injury free and ready and the training able to like get them there in good shape. And then also. What was the second part of it? Well, which is it the is it the recovery from races that eats into the training or is it just not being able to train up enough to get ready for the races? Or are we talking about the same side of the or different sides of the same coin? The different sides of the same coin um, that I mean, the recovery portion does eat into training. And then if you eat into training, you're not going to be ready for the race. Is kind of how it works. Yeah. Do you advocate the old cliche of training through a race? If the race is not overly important. Yes. Do you do that yourself? I have done it. If I recall, Ian, not to answer a question directed at you, not me, but um, before your fifth place finish in Tahoe, wasn't that part of your scheme? You went out to a Canadian race like two weeks before and raced back-to-back brutal mountain courses as your final big smash before your uh, your taper. Am I not correct? So I would answer that question for you to say, yes, you do that. Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. However, you must know that going into those races that you're, quote, training through, you shouldn't be expecting, like, your best performance. The fact that I won that entire weekend is shows that I was in really good shape. And the fact I didn't get injured is a miracle. But uh, I had also done a lot of things to help prevent that. I had done all of the strength training I needed. Um, like, there was a lot that went into that. But there are times to absolutely train through races, especially if there's a big, important race two or three weeks out where going into a taper and then recovery period is highly detrimental to that more important race a little bit after it. I think it's mentally challenging on an athlete. Even if you go in knowing this doesn't matter, I am going to be at a diminished capacity. It's really tricky not to read too far into that. And that's, that's a tough thing for people to pull off correctly. Very true. And you, the biggest thing is being comfortable with your own abilities and not setting very, like not having expectations, just going in, knowing it's for training, knowing it's for the betterment down the road. And it really helps as a coach for me, at least as an athlete, because I know what I'm doing is correct. I know this is, there's reasons I'm doing it. Um, as an athlete, if you don't necessarily see the big picture, it can be challenging and you go in and you have a crap performance probably because you could barely walk going into the race. That's going to be hard going into that really big a race unless you've done it before and you know it works yeah i find as a coach like um grooming your athletes to understand the scope and and also like you know prefacing their races with okay like just so you know this race may not be perfect and that's okay and if you set those expectations it seems to go a lot better doesn't it in the fact we're like as long as they can understand the big picture then then it's yeah, fine. I'll phrase it with athletes. I'll phrase it differently. I will. I won't necessarily say it's not going to be perfect or anything. I'll say you're going in at a fatigue state. Your performance will be diminished. 
political answer. I like it. Well, I say that because I try not to get any sort of negative connotations in their head, even going into, even if they're going into a race compromised, I still want them to do their best. And if they go in with a negative mindset where they're thinking, oh, I'm not going to do very well at all. I'm so tired. All of these negative thoughts, they can have a huge detriment on the race itself. And just, I try and remove that barrier because they've got enough difficulties going in through a training race anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I am. Um, something pops up uh, a question then for you specifically, especially looking at the big picture and, and really trying to peak for one big end race is, um, you know, in this, in the sport of OCR anyways, but you know, if you're an avid road racer or trail racer, you can fall into this trap is like you say, you know, once a month is probably too much, but are you kidding me? I would say half the athletes listening to this podcast race on average every three weeks, almost for the entirety of the year, right? Like it's, we're an over race community, um, which is a really tough water to navigate as a coach. I know you know this because I'm sure you have athletes who do it and Bracken and I have handfuls of athletes who do it. How do you approach the uh, athlete who's not willing to give up their love for racing every two or so weeks and still stick to your philosophy? Like, what do you do there? I let them experience it firsthand. And then usually, so there's an athlete, I there's multiple athletes I've had who have done this and still mm -hmm. do it. Um, I'll let them do one season of it. And usually they'll go in, have good results in the beginning, and then towards the middle to end late summer, early fall, they'll definitely see the difficulty behind it um, with racing that much and trying to train. It just doesn't quite work out. So I'll let them experience that. And we'll have conversations leading into it being like, you're racing too much. I understand you want to do this. I'm just going to let you know that it is too much and you'll experience this later on. And then they go through it and they're like, yeah, you know, I actually race too much. That was, that was too much. I think next year we can make some changes. Um, and having that come from an internal self-realization is a lot more powerful than coaches just parroting at you because um, they'll want to make the change. That makes it, the conversation and schedule building a lot easier. Yeah, I agree with that. I let all of my athletes who like to race a lot make the mistake for one full year mm -hmm. with those conversations. And then it's usually like, hey, let's uh, let's really talk about what we're doing next season now. And usually they're very compliant and willing and begging for it. Are you the same way, Bracken? Yeah, I like to try to temper it the best I can, but well, of course, if there's ever pushback against any portion of a plan, the plan's almost useless. And so sometimes I mean, we say it a lot on here: uh, a C level plan with A level commitment and execution is going to get you farther than an A level plan with C level commitment and execution. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes, yeah, the you, to get the commitment, you have to let them go off to college for a year, you know, live the <laughs> live the life away from mom and dad for a bit, and then come back and realize, you know, they're not so bad. Uh, Bracken, you're so poetic. No wonder you guys have so many listeners. It's just a, it's a, it's pleasant to hear you speak. <laughs> you you keep the flattery coming. All right, I I I have a lot I want to get to today but I don't want to shortcut anything. So do you have other things on the premise of the philosophy of how to build base that you think the general public needs to hear before we move on to spicier things? I really don't like the terminology base because people, they take that and run with it. Let's say aerobic development. 
That's great. I love it. Um, or soft tissue development. Those two are my favorite words, aerobic development, soft tissue development. You know, you and Hunter, you and Hunter both brought that up in the last month. The concept that you can progress muscularly way quicker than, than tendons and ligaments can keep up and that that's the number one issue. I like that you two are very, very different in every sense of the word, but you're both honing in on the truths of the body. Mm -hmm. And I actually listened to a, another podcast recently that was purely based on tendon and ligament development and adaptation, and it was fascinating. Here's something for all the listeners out there. You only get tendon adaptation stress in the first six minutes of any activity. So you go for a three hour long run. The only thing that actually counts is the first six minutes in terms of tendons and ligaments. How is that proven? They did. Uh, you would have to follow up on the podcast. It was science of ultra. I don't know what episode, but they did a study with it and it is insane. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I might be quoting it incorrect and it might be like heavily diminishing returns. Like you're not actually getting a lot more. You might be getting small, small, small adaptations, but um, the first six, six minutes is the key. So outside of lack of availability of just blood flow pumping through the areas, what are the other causes for tendons and ligaments not recovering and adapting at the same rate as muscles? Blood flow is the main one, and then you're also going to get into nutrient profile. Um, so you're, if you do have tendon and ligament problems, you definitely want to be supplementing with collagen or gelatin. Um, unfortunately, I had to stop that recently because I have a hand issue to where I have something called Dupatrens where my hand will steadily contract due to fascial shortening over time. Um, and taking collagen accelerates that process. Over time in a, in a workout or over time of life? Time of life. So I have fairly large, fairly large nodules. Ian, do you remember when I said I had this lump on my hand I had to get removed and we had a conversation about it? Yes. You remember that? Well, we can yeah. fist bump to having the same uh, same syndrome because it came back as Jordan. So uh, I got a second lump now developing on my hand on one of my tendons. What? It looks like me and you are going to have to to stand on this rock together, Ian. Oh, dude, I've I've done a lot of research. Don't get radiation therapy at your age is all I can say. People will tell you to don't do I it. I haven't done any, I haven't done anything but look at it and rub it a little bit and be like, yep, it's there. That's all I've done. I would say don't look into it as long as possible because then you'll get the whole freak out of like, oh, man, my hand's going to turn into a fist. Regardless, <laughs> going back to the original question, taking collagen and gelatin to help supplement the amino profile for tendons and ligaments is beneficial and then increasing blood flow to the area because that is the limiting factor as well those are the two main ones uh, you may not be able to answer this but i'm going to ask it anyways because it's your realm supplementing because we all hear the numbers of how much slower that tendons and ligaments take to to progress rather than muscles but taking collagen will that and gelatin apparently how, how would what sort of percentage of increase in terms of time to match up with muscles, do you see, or is that not proven? I don't know the answer to that. I okay. probably have heard it once upon a time. Um, it, I can safely say it increases it or it decreases the amount of time to match up in terms of the question. Um, Significantly enough to be worth doing to the average athlete. Absolutely. hundred percent. Okay. 
if if their diet is if you're not like drinking bone broth every day or something like that already because that is another way to supplement it um or like eating 10 minute chicken ligaments or things like that if you're already getting a good source of collagen or those aminos it's not necessary but most people in our in the current american diet and most diets uh have that lack and supplementing is beneficial gotta add that to my list of things to look into <laughs> i got some deer hooves you can gnaw on bracken if you want to do that that should move the needle for you bracken with your history of soft tissue injuries specifically the knee i was i am surprised you're not doing this i would i would have had you do this the day like leading into the surgery and the day after every single day really yes look at me just bashing my head against the wall over here yeah you know i uh not to get uh, off subject too far but I, I dated this uh like left field sort of chiropractor years ago and her philosophy was she went to a very reputable school here in Minneapolis, Northwestern uh, chiropractic school. And her philosophy was, well, I have a knee issue. So uh, the best treatment is to, well, let's take a cow's knee and let's boil it down and let's let's drink the, you know, serum that and broth that is made from this. So she would she had this knee issue and she would have this pot of like cow joint as her bone broth to get the correct uh nutrients for her current ailment so taking it to extremes who's her county guy uh, what's who's her you know you gotta it's hard to get a good county guy but uh up here in the midwest you can actually buy i made bone broth at home you can buy the bones you want from butchers and farmers they set those aside for weirdos um i shouldn't say weirdos for naturalists for granola eaters and then they boil the part of the body that in which uh, you're having issues with. So you just need to find yourself some good knee joints, Bracken, put them in some boiling water and see what happens. I might go kangaroo knee joints. That's a smart idea. You should just take their ligament from like their paw to their hind, you know, their knee joint and I gnaw on that. Bracken, if you you really want to go full profile, you could just find some cadavers and cut out their Achilles tendons. Better yet. I am waiting for an alive moment. (laughs) i stay prepared in fact we just talked about cannibalism with our kids this week (laughs) how'd that get brought up it felt like time (laughs) uh, they were my parents just got back from tahoe (laughs) and they were talking about the donner pass Mm -hmm. and one thing led to another and cannibalism came up and kids are never donner went to Dahmer? Is that what happened? <laughs> there was a lot of cannibalism on the Donner Pass tragedy. Okay, with the flight situation. That was the that was the uh, that was South America, I believe, with a rugby okay. team. This was the uh, gold rush years. Yes, uh, they got trapped on a pass, and then I think it was some thirty some people, and oh, not, way more, way more. Yeah. Well, that number did not survive, but the ones that did eight people yeah what what part of me would you eat if you if you thought like this part of kirk i would eat and make me better what what would it be back in i generally start with glute but with you i'm going right to peck right to peck all right what yeah. about <laughs> what about ian what part of ian would you would you munch on for help yeah, benefits? probably glutes okay maybe his tongue <laughs> <laughs> i'll take that as a the important stuff now 
All right. Well, I'll cross that off our to-do list today. Talk about cannibalism. Good. <laughs> yeah. But Bracken, going back to college, and I, there are some I can recommend to you post uh, interview, and yeah, you should be you over. should be taking it daily. Ian, I thought I gave him the answer with the counties, but I guess I'm wrong. So I feel like he's more of a supplement guy. I might spread collagen on counties. Use it like hummus. <laughs> there you go, and just lick it off. That provokes like a visceral negative reaction to me, that thought. I thought you like bad tasting things. Isn't that the premise of coffee and whiskey yeah, for you? Uh, bitter and... Uh, this, county that's, can't uh, not be bitter. Okay, Gone Rogue Chips falls under county. <laughs> <laughs> I like them. I, I like them. I, I also, Ian, I well played. <laughs> that was, that was well-timed, Ian. Bracken, let's do this, all right? Because yeah. we could follow this train until the episode's up, I believe, with us three. Um, I think you should ask him a little bit more about Nike and Salazar. And then I want to save a good, like, you know, 50 minutes to ping off some questions to him. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I like it. That's where I want to go next anyway. Wait, if you guys, if now's a good stopping point, I just made it home and can switch, uh, onto a laptop. Go for it. Cool. Mic check. Mic check. Good, good. Oh, you grab you. You took time to grab a snack in your break. I see. I'm so hungry. It's allowable. I was gonna go get a snack because I'm also hungry, but then I thought I'm dedicated to this conversation. I'm not gonna leave to get a snack. That's right. All right. So last week, you'll be interested to hear that we asked we asked a few questions that we'll ask of you as well. But one was Richard, if you had to go after a Masters World Record starting right now. And you put your whole life into it and you had to hire a coach. Who would you hire? And he said, Alberto Salazar. And I have studied Salazar's stuff for a decade now. And I've always thought that there's a lot of interesting things that Nike does. And you got a behind the scenes look at what Nike does. And one of the things is their theories on speed development throughout a season is very different from the vast majority of what other pro training camps are doing and that they don't let things go ever. They're working on speed from what I can gather year round and they repeat shorter cycles over and over and over and over and over. So I want to hear about your theory of speed development for endurance athletes. Well, you just described it, so I don't need to say anything. That's like that was basically it. You work on speed all year round. But but that that term, I almost don't like you don't like hearing base. I almost don't like hearing speed. Because I was a mid-distance runner in college, and speed meant something very different to me than it does to a 10K person, but it means something very different to an athlete. So speed is almost like a taste aversion to me. So I want to define, not just we work on it year-round, what does speed mean to you? For me personally, since I'm in the endurance world, it means operating at those higher intensities for heart rate and physiologically. Um, it's not I, mo My training is not pace-based. Some of it is at certain times with certain athletes. However, for the vast majority, it's heart rate based. And that would be operating in high end of zone four and then zone five if you go with the five traditional zone model. Um, and then if you go into like where you break five down into supplemental ones, doing different ones in those like five A, B, and C stuff. Um, and it's working those systems uh, just at a lower volume percentage, depending on when you're at in the year. So if you had to slap generic terminology on those systems, 
what race paces are you roughly talking about? Uh, threshold and then a mile and below. Sometimes uh, that's not true. Threshold pace and then usually half marathon, 10K and 5K and mile. And then shorter duration intervals, obviously you can go down to like max sprints. Mm-hmm. But it's it's the full spectrum. And this is where we start to get people feeling like they're back in algebra class and numbers are starting to push down. Like he just named seven paces. How am I possibly supposed to work on this year round? So let's let's get some some clarification here. Are you are you doing it in standalone workouts? Are you doing multi-pace skill work throughout? Or are you sprinkling different pieces in throughout a week? Different pieces in throughout it's several of those. It's uh specific ones within workouts. And then sprinkling different ones throughout the week. Um, usually my uh, week is broken down into having two speed sessions. One of them is threshold based. And then one of them is more on the anaerobic or the higher, the, the higher, higher intensity side. So you might have one where you're doing a steady threshold run and another where you might be doing five or 10K intervals. Pace intervals. Yes. Not yes. five or 10K. Yes. Yes, that would be more of a threshold run. <laughs> and that is year-round? Yes. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's off-season, and we drew, do take away those because, um, like, I'm not looking to really be working those systems. I'd want more of recovery focus during the off-season. And then we can, depending on the athlete and what they want to do, like, we can do some more targeted stuff during that. But um, year-round, it is hitting those, yes. Do you change your proportions of threshold versus truly anaerobic work throughout the year? Or do you keep them pretty much the same and just extend throughout the season the amount of time you can keep at that? The second one. So the ratios are fairly similar throughout the year, yes. So you're a speed extension guy? Yes. And then, it, I mean, depending on what the athlete is training for, there are some, we do do some targeted pace work. So extension as well as more uh i don't know bracken give me a term for like when you dial it in more i don't know what would be the uh, alternative to speed extension uh keeping the same and cutting down pace faster and faster throughout the year starting at 5k pace and moving down to 3k in summer and mile by the fall maybe less applicable to our sports yes um that can i do do that with some athletes it's very rare though, especially in endurance athletics. Yeah. You would need a real specific race purpose for that. Yeah. In short pace extension. <laughs> okay. So pace extension. I like, I, I, I love speed extension because to me, the speed, the question I'm sure you get, and we've talked about it on here before is how do I get faster? I'm just not fast enough to run. And my, my dumb answer is always, you could hold it for a hundred. You're fine with speed, right? Anyone's fast enough to run four minute pace for 40 meters. Uh, Actually, that's not true. Not everyone, but anyone who's asking you for coaching can probably run 60 second quarter pace for 50 meters. If you want to argue on this point, we can move past (laughs) it. But the point is like, I I understand the concept you're saying. Most people are faster at sprinting. Yeah. And, and we all just, we all, most people just lack the ability to hold it. So I love the idea of speed extension, but then eventually, and this is where I think true coaching comes into play. You extend, you extend, you, there, you can only extend so far. And then you have to reset either down to a, a faster pace back to the original interval set and move back up again, 
or it's this kind of gray amorphous continuum where you're constantly resetting paces or heart rate or whatever it is and continuing to build and adjust workouts. How do you like to proceed throughout that? Because most people don't build speed, let's say 32 to 40 weeks out of the year, like it sounds like you do. So you will have to have a a very specific theology behind how you do it. Maybe philosophy, not theology, but I think God plays a role in speed development. (laughs) Some people hope he does. I know it's hard work and genetics, (laughs) but... (laughs) There's only so we're not going down that road. Um, the the simple answer to your question is heart rate training for me at least. Um, the beauty of heart rate training is it takes all of that into account for you. If you get faster and more efficient, you're gonna have to run faster in order to maintain the heart rate at which you should be operating at. Um, I've had athletes working with me, and they're like. God, my aerobic runs, I'm having to run faster to get into heart rate zone. I'm like, yep, that's a good thing. <laughs> and like the heart rate zone is still there. And that's where you should be operating and to get these physiological gains and adaptations. And it takes that into account. As you get faster, you just run at that heart rate zone and you have to run faster to get there. You can't just run the same speed. So the reset is happening every single workout. It's not just in steps like every workout the reset happens i was hoping you were going to say that because this is where i think heart rate training starts to break down for a lot of people how do i possibly do quote unquote speed intervals that aren't taking me super long to do and use heart rate which sometimes takes a little bit to rise up into the zone i want to hit how long do i have to be in that zone to hit the proper interval can i do 400 meter intervals off heart rate no, if I don't reach it till the end. So I want to hear about your philosophy of speed training with heart rate zones. I don't have one because it's bad. Okay. So talk to me about how you implement that. I'm with you on that one, Ian, by the you, way. You should not use heart rate zones for speed training. I thought we were just talking about speed extension. Correct. But that you can also apply this to like your uh, your standard aerobic runs or threshold runs. I'm not talking about for high intensity zone five. What about four? Zone four. If you go by the classic model, zone four is still threshold or below threshold. How long of intervals do you do at that work? I usually cap people around at like 60, 65 minutes of work, 70 minutes of work total. Do you do threshold intervals ever? Do I do threshold intervals? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Every week. Okay. So like what's the lowest threshold interval you'll do? The lowest duration. Okay. I understand your question now. I will, the minimum duration will be like five minutes. Oh, okay. So you avoid that by not even playing the game. Oh, no. Why would okay. you play that game though? I play that game, Ian, but we're not here to talk about me. No. We're here to talk about you. You like to play that game with like 30 seconds rest. You just, you just poor little legs get tired and you just need a quick 30 no, seconds. No, 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 no. We're not talking about me. We're talking about Ian. If you want to use heart rate zones to the best of their abilities, you should be getting into steady state. And usually that's around three minutes, three and a half minutes to like six and a half minutes, depending on pace, where you're at and fatigue, all of those factors. But for this conversation and this question, five minutes is where I'll cap it at like a threshold interval. Um, For higher intensity, higher intensity intervals, I do not have athletes use heart rate. I will 
possibly look at like the peak heart rate they get to during an interval as mm -hmm. an indication of how hard they were working for that duration. And then I also take into account how long that duration was because you cannot get to the heart rate equivalent of like say power output in a 30 second interval. It doesn't Correct. work. Mm -hmm. um, mostly because you're using your anaerobic stores and your heart isn't having to work as much because you're purely not using much oxygen. Um, in that scenario. So I will have them go buy RPE for those. Um, so and most people know how hard you can make something hurt really, really bad, like in terms of passing out or really bad, and then just kind of wear on that scale. And um, I'll use one through 10 scale. So I usually want people operating on like eight and a half and above 10, I usually try and stay away from or you can go to the board scale, which is like the four through 20 six through 20 and it's pointless i believe it's four through 20 is it yes because they did it on heart rate hmm. originally. i thought it was six i'm gonna look it up right now and settle this because people had 40 resting heart rates and that's what they were equating it to okay i might stand corrected either way that only interesting thing about the borg scale is how foolish the premise is which is multiply by 10 and that's <laughs> roughly the heart rate zone that people will be at when they predict their rate of perceived exertion except that's not true because the average person wouldn't say i think i'm at a, a 16 you're like you are because times 10 is 160 they'd say no you're at 160 that's a 16 does that make sense to you i'm interrupting i'm interrupting this one says it starts at a six i stand corrected i'm okay with being wrong Especially record. on the Borg scale, because <laughs> it needs to be redone. <laughs> one through 10 is the only thing that makes sense. It's a highly outdated model. And especially on one through 20, you're like, oh, yeah, 20 being the hardest and six being sleeping. Like, where would you be? <laughs> six is, in quotes, no exertion at all. Could have been easier to start at zero, in my opinion. I'm a classic However... six right now. Like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> I mean, it's according to Borg scale, I might, oh, I'm at a seven currently because I did finish a workout a while ago, but um, I would like one through five. I like one through 10 because it does provide a bit more granularity, but no one ever understands like a, what a one through four actually is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, numbers start making sense at six to people. And I think it's because of the academic <laughs> system. It's easy to say 60%. I get that. Well, like a difference between a 40 and a 45 and a 50 to people is, is negligible. Regardless. Uh, <laughs> so I do. Thanks, Borg. I mean, I working at Nike, you had to use it for like uh, a lot of athlete input and the um, heavily subjective side of things. Like, how are you feeling? So it was, I'm very familiar with the Borg scale and we did have a modified Borg scale on it, but like it, it's a silly way to do things. However, I do use rate of perceived exertion for high intensity intervals and not heart rate because of, I'm sure you guys have talked about this before, heart rate lag, which is very heavy on high intensity intervals. And with them being so short, it doesn't have the time to get there. Even if it was perfect, it's still not going to get to that point quickly. I agree. I think the only good thing about Borg, and the last thing I'll say about it, is <laughs> They did a good job of quantifying the I feel like words with a number. 
So if someone tells you this feels blank, they'll say, oh, this is like a 17 over here. They did a good job with that. But outside of that, I agree with you. RPE is a very, very good way of going about it. Yeah. They used it in, uh, in grad school uh, when I was in my ex-phys program. When we did our VO2 max testing, we just had to slap our finger right on that Borg scale, how we were feeling at the time. Now I recall six is definitely it. Bracket, can we uh, can we jump into some questions, some specific questions for Ian? Let's break mold and let's just Q and A. But yeah, okay. that's how we. This is the point. I mean, we got to get to this point eventually with all these coaches. It's right? just hard for us to stick to that. We're conversationalists. I know that's not our MO. We're not interviewers. It's so true. Well, you're getting interviewed, Ian. Okay. Yeah, and the entire running public is. But, deciding. Are you going to ask me the question that you asked Diaz about who I would coach if I had to break a mastered record? Because it would not be Al- Alberto. So, so uh, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that question. Yeah, okay. but you're not a masters yet. So, and you're not leading the interview. Okay, but you it's know, our, guys, let's switch show. this around. <laughs> who tried to do that? Jack Bauer. When we had Jack Bauer on, it was like, who's hosting this damn thing? Don't Jack Bauer us. Don't Jack oh, Bauer us. No, this is your guys' thing. I wouldn't dream of it. But but you're the you're the star. Okay, um, I'm gonna ask you three philosophy questions, Ian. Okay, first of all, and you can take this any direction you want, and it's not our job to give our opinions necessarily. So you're not gonna be combated unless you're absolutely ludicrous. Okay, um, what uh, which you are kind of in general in life, I suppose. So maybe we will. <laughs> I'm glad you prefaced that. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is your philosophy on treadmills? and the use of them in relation to improving, uh, well, any facet of running, I guess. What do you think about them? Good, bad, ugly, your thoughts? I live in a place where it snows a lot, a lot. Treadmills are necessary for certain individuals if you would like to increase running. I do go out when it's like 15 degrees, sometimes negative five. It's not as enjoyable. Um, treadmills can cause injuries, mostly because they stick you in the sagittal plane for so long. So that straightforward running with no lateral movement and road runners get this as well. So as long as you're doing the necessary injury prevention and hip stability work, strength work, um, I'm okay with them. I don't promote them for continuous use. I try and recommend my athletes run on trails as their primary training, um, location. However, there are times when they are beneficial when there are three when it snows three feet. What about what about weather aside? Um, when would you choose a treadmill over uh, real terrain, if ever? Uh, also, if you live in a place that doesn't have real terrain, um, and by that I mean pancake flat, and you're training for a, pl- a mountain series or a mountain race that is very heavily gained. Um, and you just can't get that going outside, that would be a time to implement it as well uh, when you can't necessarily get the corresponding train for what you're looking for. But I'm not saying do it every time, but once or twice a week in that scenario. Okay, that's how I use mine. YouTube bracken, right? <laughs> yeah, it's my mountain. Yeah, exactly. And that's great because you guys don't have mountains. We have landfills. We have land, it's true. 145 feet of gain. The sand dunes I was on were larger than the mountains where you guys are, or hills. That's disgusting. Yeah. Piss off. <laughs> Philosophy <laughs> on shoes. What do you, what do you, do you have any general thoughts, feelings about uh, shoes 
and how to make those decisions? That's such a vague question. That's the point. <laughs> I know. Um, we'll just we'll start with super shoes because that's the one everyone loves. Super shoes make you run faster. They are they make you more metabolically efficient and they make you run faster. Period. They you should not train in them 100 percent of the time. That's my thoughts on super shoes. Um, for regular shoes, you should find the shoe that feels good as soon as you put it on. Like if you slide your foot into a shoe and you're like, oh man, this is the shoe. That's the one you should run in. Um, and then on that same, if you do put it on and you take a few steps and it doesn't feel good, don't run in it. Um, you should run in shoes that don't injure you or cause issues. If you are getting issues from shoes, you should probably change something. Mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. So you actually go into the philosophy though. That's I think people aren't actually very in touch with that. Let's spend 30 seconds on it. Like sliding a pair of shoes on and being like, ah, that feels nice. Like what's a shoe supposed to feel like when you put your foot in it? That. It should feel nice. It should conform to your foot. It should be semi-tight but not too constricting. It shouldn't feel super loose and wiggly. Um, the cushioning should feel right in all the correct places. Sometimes if it has arch support, that should fit your arch. Uh, shoes can often have arch support, but you could have a different arch than most people, and it could be too far back or too far forward. And that's going to be really uncomfortable when you start running. Um, and then in a running shoe store, if that's where you get your shoes or wherever, put them on and just go run around the store. I mean, sometimes they let you take them on the street. That's very rare. Uh, but go do some jogging around. Feel it out. Go up and down. Some, and if it's a trail shoe, ask the associates, do you have a rock I can step on and see how that feels? It's a good idea. It should feel good. It should, things, the shoe should feel good from the get-go. If you notice red flags, then those are only going to be exacerbated by running in it and putting it thousands of foot strikes in it. I like that. Simple. Yeah. But you can't go wrong with that. When a shoe stops feeling good for you, you find another one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree that you shouldn't really notice like hot spots or anything on your feet in general. You shouldn't be thinking about your feet while you're running at all. And if you are, there's something probably not right with that shoe in your foot. Um, one last vague question on philosophy. Um, and then I'll get more specific. Don't worry. Um, your general philosophy on strength training for endurance athletes. Not yes, you should do it. I understand you should. But like <laughs> you give me some smart ass answer. But like, what do you think in general? Like, where do people go right? Where do they go wrong? Like if you had to just give me like a elevator pitch on your strength philosophy for runners. Everyone should do strength training. Is that good? No. <laughs> you should well, work. Ian, thanks for coming on today. Yeah. <laughs> it's been great. Uh, you should work. There are a couple of things. Um, you should absolutely work in your posterior chain. Uh, for road runners, focusing more on not necessarily your back, but your glutes, hamstrings, calves, and that lower body. Um, working your quads, and then often, as some runners know, and then some front runners learn later on, stability work uh, at the hips is absolutely crucial. Um, running in a straight line does not make you have strong hips. It makes your hips really weak, and you can actually get more efficient and powerful and prevent a lot of injuries from stabilizing your hips and getting your TFL and glute working like they should be. Uh, those are the key focuses. A strong core is great to help with stabilization and power transfer and having abs is always cool. Uh, 
I don't think upper body for runners is very beneficial personally. But Ian, I'm already running on my legs and lifting is just going to take away from my running. Well, if you believe that, you should continue doing it because I think you're wrong. (laughs) All right. You you mentioned hips several times. So real quick, what should all runners exercise or two that everyone needs to be doing? Banded lateral walks and monster walks. So just any of those silly banded routines that you see runners post all over the internet and listeners, I know you've seen them because they're all over the place. Do those. They look really silly and your ass is going to burn, but it's so worth it. You know, my favorite one is, is simply getting in a side plank position, pulling that toe towards your shin and pointing it down and then doing a leg raise in a side position and the side plank. It more works your plant leg than the leg that's actually flying up and down in the air, but it's bang for your buck. Obliques, core, the hip and the leg that's raising gets a subtle amount of work, but that hip that's planted with the foot on the ground gets a shitload of work. Oh, yeah. bang for your buck right there. No, that's a great, um, yeah, I, that's a fantastic one. And you get core and shoulder stability with that one as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, you got uh, Abu Dhabi coming up. It's a half marathon distance. Uh, let's say again, a two hour race, but here's your conundrum. You can only run 20 miles a week and do all the quality work your heart desires, or you can run infinite volume per week, but no breaching or even getting above your, uh, like your lactate or anaerobic threshold. You're only allowed to work mostly steady state type stuff. And you're putting a hard cap on any effort you run. What are you picking? 20 miles a week and all the quality work your heart desires or infinite mileage, but a governor on any of your training? Infinite mileage, hands down, without even a second thought. It's a 13 mile race. It's two hours. That's what a marathon is. Why? Uh, the race is longer than five minutes. So it, it's, ve- it's very much an aerobic race, especially this one in sand where it's going to be hard to elevate your heart rate, as we discussed earlier. So let's murky it. Yeah, let's murky it. Go ahead. Let's murky it. Lower that distance down. I'm going to start bringing my hand down and talking. That wasn't the original question, guys. Come (laughs) on here. You tell me now, when I hit a distance where you would change your philosophy, 90-minute race, 60-minute race. What, 20 miles a week? Yep, Mm -hmm. 10K. That's so eight k not much. Five k. <laughs> I might go five k. All right, five k is your tip even point, maybe. May maybe because you guys are forcing me into it, and I don't have the time to do math or anything. But you're making me do it. I would almost drop it down to a three k personally. I agree. I would, but all I like, and you could argue a thousand even, like a a, a mile. Okay, we'll go with mile. Just because for the sake of, I'd say this all the time where the mile is like the breaking point between true, like it's the cusp or the middle ground between endurance racing and like anaerobic speed work stuff Mm -hmm. or anaerobic racing that we'll just say the mile for the sake of it. Okay. Now the caveat, if I'll add one subcategory to this and I've done done a majority of, in fact, times in which I beat you, I've been running 20 or 30 miles a week with the exception of I'm putting in aerobic work on other modalities. So now you have the injury or I can't put in that much volume camp. 
you got 20 miles a week, all the quality work your heart desires, and you can substitute in aerobic time and other modalities, bike, rower, cross-country skiing, I don't care what. Or you have your infinite miles, but you're capped at, uh, under your, your lactate threshold. Uh, where are you at then? For the original question? Where, yeah, for yeah, the, sorry, for the, the original two, question. The two-hour race? Yeah. It would be the uh, combination of cross-training with 20-mile week. Cause you can devote all of those 20 miles. Like you can, if you have unlimited time to go do aerobic training on whatever cross training device you want, um, you can devote those 20 miles to just pure economy and get really, really efficient. What would your non-impact cardio be then? What would you choose as your other implements? Either roller skiing or cycling. Okay. And why then wouldn't you just do that to start with? I mean, a lot of people do do that. <laughs> I mean, why don't you, why isn't that your system? Because I can't work out infinitely on, or I can't work out aerobically infinitely, period. <laughs> That's the answer. I need to get some economy from running. Um, and there is a lot of benefit to just getting miles logged and gaining that efficiency with good form. Yeah. I've built most of my recent career on about the 20 to 30 mile a week plan, but supplementing with, you know, other aerobic modalities. So I was curious what you said there. That's where you're different from Diaz. Diaz still stood on his island of volume, uh, no matter what. No comment. Next question. Next, next question. Um, if you have to think about who's been the most influential on, on you, as far as uh, let's take yourself out of it because I know you've done a lot of studying and researching on your own, which is admirable. Um, who who have been your um, senseis? Like, who have you learned the most from, whether it's been a book or other people? Like, uh, who who does your mind go to when it comes to learning about all this? Dr. Phil Skiba, Andrew Jones, and Brett Kirby, and Brad Wilkins. Phil Skiba? Skiba? Mm-hmm. He's not about our age, is he? No, he's older. I went. I competed against a Phil Skiba um, who went to lacrosse. He was two years older than me, and I had his driver's license as a fake ID for two years. I was Philip Leonard Skiba III. That's not the same? These are not the same individuals. They all... Uh... You wouldn't know. He doesn't have an ID. <laughs> Andrew Jones and Wilkins and Skiba, I know, are all PhDs. Uh, I believe Kirby is. I don't know for sure. They are basically, or at the time when I worked at Nike, were the lead sports physiologists uh, at Nike at that time, um, or at least working as on as a consult as consults to Nike. Um, Andrew Jones and Skiba coached oh who was it for the women's marathon which still holds at 216 um bracken please help just got broken didn't it did it this year paula radcliffe's got broken okay well it was paula radcliffe's and that was without super shoes yes but they they were her coaches at when she broke it Um, and Wilkins was the lead physiologist for the Nike Sports Research Lab. And then Kirby also was working under Wilkins and I believe took his job once Wilkins left. Um, Those are the people where I learned a lot of my foundational sports physiology and science from. 
Anything you could like put a finger on specifically? Critical velocity, uh, pretty much all sports science, metabolics, um, heart rate training, like you name it. And I, I didn't necessarily work with them one-on-one individually, but just got to observe and ask questions, um, which was fantastic. And it, I, those few years that I spent with them, I would argue are much better than any four-year education I could have got for sports science. Hmm. Even master's program. Essentially, I got my own thesis with them, <laughs> just observing and watching what they were doing. It's like learning Spanish in college, and then I went to Mexico, and I could speak it better after being there for 10 days than I ever oh, could absolutely. sit in the classroom. Absolutely. Speaking, sorry, you brought up uh, you brought up Paula Radcliffe. Speaking of depressing results that make you feel slow, did you see the women's half marathon record got broke this week? My God. Yes, I did. <laughs> 62 minutes half yeah, marathon for a female. What is it, like 448 pace or something? Ugh. It's you don't want to know. It makes you feel bad at life. Um, and they broke the beer mile, which I think is now four twenty eight. Four twenty eight beer mile. Who did that? A Canadian, I believe. They the have... US guy had it, but it wasn't ratified because he had too much beer left in his bottles. He ran four twenty four or four twenty six. Yeah, there's a whole like they do an event for it. It's it's awesome. There's money to be. You can almost make a career almost in beer miling right mm-hmm. now. His I mean... bottle chugs were all between six and seven seconds. Yeah. So he ran. So he ran roughly four even or four under four oh five. I think he. I think he ran four right around four flat. It was like between fifty eight and sixty seconds, sixty two seconds every lap. And he consumed forty eight ounces of liquid, which is three pounds. He gained three pounds during the event. Plus, plus air. I mean, plus air, but yeah, like. <laughs> that's that, that's more impressive than a sixty two minute half marathon. If you ask me. I mean, I had, that's why I had to bring it up. Both of them are very impressive feats of athleticism. They're outrageous. Um, okay. Uh, what were some, and maybe still are, like, from a coaching standpoint, what are some of the mistakes you made early on coaching your athletes that you would go back and, like, be like, ah, uh, young Ian, if you only knew what you knew now, is there anything that you would change, or have you always been a perfectly executed coach from day one it's been pretty close to like what i do now i have adjusted some things i was uh benchmarking or time trialing athletes a bit too often they a lot of people don't necessarily like that running as hard as you can um frequently so i did cut that down uh to benchmarking on a less frequent scale and that's the the biggest change that I've had. I have shifted heart rate zones here and there over the years based on like some research. Um, and then increase cross training to a certain extent with athletes who don't necessarily handle all the running volume great. Um, but those are the minor changes I've made over the years. How often is too often to time trial and what's appropriate? I don't I can't answer what's appropriate because it's different for everyone. Um, and it depends on the level of athlete, like high level athletes should be time trialing fair, more frequently than recreational ones just to be tracking your performance. And there's a lot of cool models out there that allow you to, uh, do microcycle predictions, like get down to like what your true microcycle is. Um, I was, uh, benchmarking athletes every other week, which I found to be a bit 
too much. And now I'm around like, I'll do it every month or two, sometimes longer if it's in season. That tracks. What do you think, Bracken? What do you, what is your philosophy? I don't think we've ever talked about how often necessarily. When I build out a training plan with no races on the schedule, it's about every six weeks. Yeah. I'm time trialing. Um, races screw everything up. Yes. So, but I like five to six weeks of training before I have to interrupt it. Mm-hmm. And then also like, if you're going to be benchmarking, you should be making sure, and you want to have consistent conditions for the athlete. Normally like a good thing to do would be put it like you have a training block where you have in, in my case, the four week build, and then you have the deload. And then I would time trial or benchmark. So they do have that recovery period. And so it's not just in the middle of the training block where it's hard to gauge fatigue levels. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'll, I agree. my shorter ones, I sneak in wherever. If it's just a climb or just a descent or just a mile or whatever, let's do that. But if they're real time trials, I almost always try to have a deload week right before. Yeah. Going kind of off topic, but also along the same lines. Uh, and Bracken, you know critical velocity, it sounds like, fairly well. Are you aware of the three-minute all-out test? And have you done it? I have not. Sounds terrible, by and the way. Are you aware of it? I'm aware of its predictive capabilities, but I haven't done it to have any sort of anecdotal proof. Understood. So why don't, why don't you go into it for us? Uh, I've done it many times and it's the it when working at nike critical velocity was starting to really come into the predictive modeling scene um and i did it five or six times in two weeks and that was one of the hardest things i've ever done in my life is it the most pain you've ever felt in a time trial because i have to imagine the intensity of it has to be terrible yes so a three minute all out test is you have three minutes and from the gun you are sprinting. I'm not talking about pacing yourself. I'm talking about like you are running for your life. And you continue that for the entire duration. Every step should be as fast as you possibly can go. And as you would imagine, your speed spikes up and then decreases over time until you kind of settle out, um, which is the purpose of the test. But it is the only time I have ever done a test and have got and had my entire torso become ice cold during it like it just it felt i started seeing black stars and my entire upper body just turned to ice and during the test the very last like little bit of it um and it's it is the most i have ever pushed myself in some sort of running event the, the reason I've never done it is different from the reason I've never given it to anyone. I've never given it to anyone because it's too impossible for the average person to implement. It's not though, actually. It is because the, the average, uh, sorry, to implement, no, but the human component, how many people can actually hold themselves to every stride is your most power. Everyone saves a bit. It's true, but the beauty of the test is, so the, you do the test, and for in our case, endurance athletics, really the only critical component is the last 30 seconds. As long as they've worked like pretty darn hard, the two minutes and 30 seconds leading up to it, the goal is to blow through every single anaerobic story you have, and then that last 30 seconds, you're in a pure aerobic state. It is the, the max aerobic thing you can maintain for the given dis- for eternity until you lose uh, nutrients or like other things 
become the limiting factor instead of just oxygen. Um, so as long as they went really, really, really hard, and I'm not talking like 100%, but if they blew through all of their anaerobic stores that prior to that two minutes and 30 seconds, which is pretty easy to do for most people, then the test will still be functional. Okay. So what is that? What is that predicting? You're the pace you're able to continue with, the heart rate you're able to continue into eternity. What is that predicting exactly? It predicts your critical velocity pace. Okay. Um, so pace. Yes, pace. It's it's another word for it's another threshold scenario. It's basically now I haven't done it, but what it basically does is I've raced an eight hundred and I've raced a twelve hundred. <laughs> yeah. You know, twelve hundred for me was three hundred one, so that's almost that. Mm-hmm. But I paced it. It would basically be like running an 800. And when you Mm -hmm. cross the finish line, you have to continue for 60 more seconds. Like you've depleted it all. And now you're just on fume, stumble walking. You're a marionette. And that terrifies me. It's an 800 and then you keep running is essentially what it is. I don't know. I just, I have a hard time taking myself there these days. It sounds like you're scared. Yeah, I am. You should be. It's it's hard. It's hard. It's yeah. not a pleasant place to be. I can't imagine doing that five times in two weeks. My, I got some really cool data out of it that I still use occasionally. Um, like they gave me some very interesting stuff, but I, it was, it hurt a lot. And the nice thing while doing it in a study at Nike was there like people on the sideline cheering for you, like, yeah, you got it. When you don't even know what like planet you're on at that point, though, you're just like, <laughs> there are did sounds. you spike up for that? I did not. I did not. I did run um, in racing flats, though. Okay. But I didn't own spikes at the time. It's all right. We can't all be perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Next question. What do you believe, like, just we'll keep this one short because we could get real deep. We can get long-winded on this one. I think we all could. Uh, Most important things to look for when hiring a coach. Like, what are a few of the boxes that you would need to check? Like, for sure. I think the easiest thing is having a conversation with a coach and going back to what I said earlier, does it make sense? Like if the coach is talking to you and can explain it to you and what they're saying makes sense, that's a good thing. Um, they should, this is a, you guys are asking me this question so I can be biased. They should have a very good grasp of science and like the human body in general, how it moves, how it functions. Um, basic anatomy just to understand like biomechanics even or if like a muscle is injured like say your it band hurts it's not your it band it's your glutes or tfl um things like that they should have a simple understanding of that more advanced the better you should talk with athletes that they actively coach um or have coached in the past and ask them their perspective because Obviously, a coach can be the best salesman on the planet, but you're going to get a more realistic viewpoint from someone he's worked with or she or they. Um, you don't think like the coach needs to be an accomplished athlete themselves? No. Uh, you, you don't think? Okay. Because some people think that think that is important when, when I don't believe that is true myself. But I am very... And that's one of the issues with high-level athletics is all of these good athletes who have genetic gifts become coaches themselves because they're good. So obviously they can make other people good, which is that's ridiculous in my mind. That is absolutely they if they've 
worked as athletes and gained a very good understanding of sports science in the body over time because they've worked with really good coaches, that's separate. But if they're good themselves and then just start coaching people, that is, I really don't have a good analogy for that, but I'm sure there's, can, Brad can come up with a good one for me. I have nothing I can pull out for you. <laughs> but there's something to be said for someone that didn't have it come easy to them. They had to think through the process a little bit more. And that doesn't mean a stud athlete can't be a stud coach. But when you look at all professional levels, most coaches were slightly successful, very unsuccessful athletes. Are you making a comment about me, Bracken? I'd say you're more <laughs> successful than me in all recent <laughs> history. So if I am, I'm making a comment about myself as well. Okay. Well, I, I would actually agree with that. That's great because they usually have to work at it to to eat mm -hmm. out every bit of performance that they possibly can because they aren't born with a VO2 max of 80. Yeah. Um, and so they have to do everything in their power. Uh, with that being said, you also want someone who is generally smart. And I don't know how you gauge that, but you don't want a dumb person coaching you. Send them an IQ test. <laughs> Imagine if one of your athletes is like, here, take this real quick before I hire you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I am really smart. Like I got good grades and or at least book smart. I don't people would debate otherwise in terms of like street smarts. <laughs> um, but I had good grades in college and went to good schools and all that stuff. Um, yeah, that sounds unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Sorry, sorry to hear that. I didn't know how to say that without sounding like a complete It's tough. Ass. It's hard to tell what, whether my IQ or my, my humility is more impressive. <laughs> my ego is quite large, as I'm sure anyone who talks to me know. But I, I'm talking with two individuals who also have very strong egos and senses of pride. Well-developed. <laughs> oh, okay. Hard-earned. Um, all right. The Richard Diaz question. Uh, which you asked if I was going to ask you, but not the uh, master's division. If, uh, if let's say eternal wealth and happiness was riding on you, knowing that you uh, have for sure reached the pinnacle of your athletic endurance performance, let's say three years from now, five years from now, you got a time window and you need to hire a coach. You got to go outside of yourself to uh, achieve the best possible outcome. Again, eternal Wealth and happiness is kind of a big deal. Ian. So who would you put your faith in right now to coach you if you had to absolutely let control of the reins and why? That that would be Andrew Jones and Phil Skiba um, because they are really, really good, smart coaches that I've worked with in the past. Um, not personally, but uh, indirectly with. And I know their capabilities and their philosophies to a certain extent and I trust them. Like what, like what would it be about? Like, like, like if you had to describe these humans a little more in detail, like how would you describe, describe them? Scientists. That makes sense coming from you. Well, this, this brings up something interesting. Robert Johnson, the coach of university of Oregon is in hot water right now because the women's team basically aired the dirty laundry of the program. And they talked about, body image and body fat percentage. And there were requirements in order to travel on the team. And I don't want to get into that, but his quote, one of his quotes was, it's just a numbers game. Any good mathematician would be, would make a good running coach. I guess I want your reaction to that quote because you chose a scientist rather than the, the mind side of the coach. 
And I think there's a place for both. And I want to know your opinion on that. Uh, I'll answer the second question first and then go back to the first question. I definitely believe mindset is huge. Like I work with um, Graham Roberts out of the UK for my mental performance aspect. Uh, he works with Lindsay, Ryan, and Rhea occasionally. And I've seen very big benefits from working with him and working through the mental side of things. So I'm not downplaying that at all. But I also know that in order for the mental side to be to unlock your full potential, you do have to have your full potential be really high in the first place. Like you have mm -hmm. to have your physiology and your speed and everything else worked out in order to get to that place. And then you want to utilize that to its fullest. That's my philosophy, but that's because I'm a scientist. And I also like, I know mindset's very powerful, but I, that would be first and foremost to me. Um, and then going on to the numbers thing, I would agree. However, that I would say his quote and he has he's quoting it out of context because he doesn't have all the information who's to say the best performance for female athletes is when they're at their lightest weight that i mean yes you can say you can have uh the same force will increase velocity if something's lighter but the thing generating the force if it's diminished then yeah there's no point um Speed potential versus real world speed. Yeah, exactly. And like <laughs> by that argument, we should all be like people coming out of the Holocaust in order to run the fastest. Like we should have zero body fat and no muscle and then we could run the fastest, which isn't the case at all. Having a healthy, functioning, working body and immune system and hormones is extremely important. I work with a number of female athletes and several of them have had eating disorders in the past or reds and they're well beyond their performance from those previous times um now that they have a normal menstrual cycle and proper hormone fluctuation mm. okay i got five minutes so you got to get all these out in five minutes you have one so last question questions i'm going to ask you you have to absolutely pick only one workout to do for eternity if all you cared about was OCR performance and then one for road racing and one for the trails. Quality You only workout. get one. Quali sorry, quality workout. The one, the flashy one that you post on your Instagram. I don't post many of those though because i think don't get bogged down in the weeds here i think they're stupid don't get bogged down in the weeds you get <laughs> to do all your aerobic volume listen listen if you think if you think a 40 minute threshold run is the key to ocr success it can be that simple but it doesn't need to be fancy i'm just saying like you get one workout for ocr one for the they can be different three different workouts and and let's say it's going to span the gam gamut between a 30 minute and a two hour long race What'd be the one? What'd be one? You can start with whatever you want, but you got to do it in like four minutes now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, is this, and I'm, this is the only workout I ever do again, or this is the workout I would give people or like, say you should go do. You can only give it out for yourself and others. You get all the aerobic work you want, but one quality workout for OCR, what would it be? You have to do it every time. And this is Spartan OCR, not normal OCR, Anything. right? anything your interpretation got to cover it all oh god you guys are this is terrible 
Um, and you're in a time crunch. Time, time is ticking right now. So the, the workout for OCR would be some if you ha- if you couldn't do anything else, it would be some I hate saying this because you guys are forcing me to, and I would never say this. <laughs> this is going to be the title of the episode when we put it up. <laughs> I'm just going to hang up. Whatever you say now. Show notes. <laughs> Ian says this is the one key. <laughs> uh, Three minutes, Ian. Time's uh, taken, brother. It'd be some variation of in high-intensity aerobic work, so around threshold or just sub-threshold into obstacles and doing intervals of that if you could only do one workout and that was what you had to do and then you could do aerobic stuff. And I, this is by, for the record, listeners, this is not the best workout, I would say. This is because Kirk and Bracken are being mean to me. I accept that mantle. <laughs> me too. Would that be a workout with prescribed rest or would it be continual movement, I guess, would be the one specificity I'd like to hear. That would be continual movement. So you would never take like, let's do eight minutes of hard OCR compromised work and then rest three minutes. It would be like, you'd be continually be moving in some sort of threshold state in an ideal world. Well, I, I would probably, it depends on the rate. If it's a 30 minute race, I would probably at a minimum 30 minutes, I would say there could be some prescribed rest depending on the race being geared up for. But in this scenario, if the athlete's great and in the position and trained up to that point continual would be fine um and it also depends on if you're operating at threshold or not threshold or sub threshold but since you're making me say it i would or just pick one uh it would be slightly below threshold you'd probably do three 20 minute intervals with mixed compromised running uh, obstacle stuff in it and then oh I just can feel the disdain coming <laughs> off your body right now. <laughs> when he said the compromised running uh, we've already covered this in a previous episode <laughs> so if you guys I do support it and there are times and places for it um <laughs> look at him right now are you in physical pain or just emotional pain his eyes are closed he's turned away from the screen and he's grimacing with a with a four minute rest in between the intervals there i said it Ugh. oh that felt oh. good to hear okay we're gonna call that the hosick and i'm gonna start giving it out on our training plan <laughs> okay you got literally 90 seconds now so one for Trail racing, let's say there's vert and then one for road racing. If you had to pick again, 30 to minute to two hour races, let's say 10K to half, 10K to marathon. I mean, it's still going to be threshold to work just without obstacles operating at that location. And you're doing all the other aerobic work. Um, threshold work is just so powerful. So you'd never get short and spicy. You'd just, you'd stick to that threshold. If you're making me pick one. Yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> yes. If you're making, you already told us that you do one of both each week. So we understand you believe in yes. both. It's like if your back's against the wall, what do you choose? Right. Yes. That would be it. Yeah. Okay. That one, that one was easy. I can handle that one. <laughs> Listen, I think that's all we got for you here today. You've done a good job. You've been a good, <laughs> a good sport. I, I very much enjoy these conversations. Except that last three minutes. I, maybe should, can I throw one out of left field, Kirk? I'll give you a 90 seconds. 60 seconds only. Describe your ultra training philosophy and how it differentiates from just a standard 90 to two hour race prep. It's very similar to still 90 to two minute, two hour race prep. I mean, it's still aerobic volume is the large amount of your work you're doing. Um, 
obviously speed work would be diminished a little bit, but it still has a place there. So are you the classic ultras are marathons with longer long runs and time on feet kind of guy? I don't have long runs go beyond three and a half hours. They've shown that it's you don't really get much uh, adaptations after that. I think all three of us are in agreement there. You know what you can't fake, Ian? Science. <laughs> I, I say that to people, but, you know, there's a lot of debate about that. <laughs> you can't fake science, but you can sure lie. That's very true. <laughs> Maybe we'll title the episode that. <laughs> you can't fake science, but you can lie. I would the, love that. The Ian Hosick story. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I don't think I've lied this episode, to my knowledge. You said, I love compromised running. I did not say that. All you need to do is OCR work. Mm. All right. I'm cutting the string. Ian, thanks for uh, thanks for your time, brother. That's been fun. Thanks for Enjoying having me, guys. One. I enjoyed it. Oh, Bracken, and I this is I listened to the Hunter episode real quickly a while ago. I would like to clarify, Ryan Atkins does not work out 20 to 30 hours a week cardio for the rest. Yes, he does. I, I, I've spoken with Ryan. If you if you if you count his climbing, his ice climbing in the winter, if you count his skiing, and if you count his okay, hiking and so time on feet, out of season he does. Gentlemen, remember when I was going to cut the cord? <laughs> out of, out that, of season he does. When he adds in more out? intensity, he does not. Correct. Okay, that's I'm talking fine. foundational work. Okay, that's different. The way the episode was phrased for many of the listeners was not the case. Well, then I apologize, redact, retract, and <laughs> Kirk cuts the cord. Uh, no, there was...